Hello everyone and welcome back to Designers on the Mic. Our featured guest this time is none other than Volko Runke. Last night we talked about his game design Nevsky, part of the Levian campaign series. We talked about the Zenobia Awards, Labyrinth, and it was really fascinating to just sit back and listen to the masters. He talked about game design, research processes, and really just everything Volko had to say. And as we talked, I couldn't help but think back just how impactful Volko was on my own wargaming interests, and my own entrance into the hobby. So coin was the driving factor in me discovering war games, wanting to learn more about them. And although a coin game wasn't the first thing I ever played, Wilderness War was one of the first modern war games I've ever played. So I hope all of you have a great weekend. Sit back and enjoy this great interview with Volko. Volko, how are you? I'm very well. Hi, Matt. Thank you very much for taking the time and enjoying joining us on Designers on the Mic. I'm really happy to have you. Well, thanks for uh, for the invitation. I really enjoyed your last show. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine why. Riding, we're still <laughs> riding the uh, Nevsky high a little bit around here. Uh, I, I can't criticize you for that. Yeah. So, look, I I do a little introduction in the beginning, but why don't you just real briefly introduce yourself for our listeners, just in case they don't know who you are. Sure. I'm, I'm Volker Runka. I'm a retired Fed and I'm a freelance designer for GMT Games. And I've published uh, several games with them, including uh, creating the coin series of games. And I'm currently working on the Levian campaign series. Awesome. And as Volko alluded to, we just recently talked about Nevsky. And I think that's probably where I want to start, if that's okay with you. Sure. And I have this running joke, but also a legitimate passion and interest in, in Finland for some reason. Oh. And so you're right up there and join next to it. And I'm curious, why why the Northern Crusades? Why not the Crusades? Uh, yeah, a couple of reasons. Um, one is I, I like to try to go where there's not a lot of competition. And when we think about what published games are out there on medieval warfare at the operational level, which is what the Levy Campaign series looks at. Um, the, the few examples that there are, uh, uh, several of them are about the Holy Land Crusades. Mm-hmm. So that was already well-trodden ground. So that's one part of it. Um, a second part of it is because the system focuses on, as you know, among other things, logistics. Uh, just, you know, how do armies move around in that time and, and what is done to sustain them? And logistics are more interesting and potentially more challenging to model, the more difficult the environment. Mm. And so here you had in the, for the Northern Crusades, a, a really interesting environment um, in which to try to show uh, how these how these armies moved and fed themselves season to season because the seasons are, are, are harsh. Um, so it was a good first first challenge for the series, I thought, and and the last reason um, is a very is a personal one. My my father's family, um, so my my father was German, um, but where he was born and grew up is in the Memelgebiet, which is a little strip of land north of the Yemen River, right next to Lithuania. So uh, I have sort of this background connection to the to the Baltic and the Baltic frontier 
and you know very remotely therefore to the Teutonic Knights and all that. And so that that made me particularly interested in that part of the world as well. That's great. What what I guess what was the chicken and what was the egg here? Was the historical topic in the case of Nevsky first or was, you know, in the past you've talked about taking these design ideas from Angola? Mm-hmm. Um what's I guess what was first? Uh I think the 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 latter was first. The uh the idea that I I felt there wasn't an answer to some questions I had about medieval warfare out there and that there was a series to be done and I had some mechanical ideas like the stealing the combat the column cards from from Angola which became the command cards in Levian campaign um and and especially the limited service time of lords and vassals and then it was okay well, where where do I start I need a specific operational setting so I've got centuries and more than a continent to work with and and the uh yeah the the and I'd seen the movie you know Alexander Nevsky so <laughs> yeah very good um <clears throat> you had mentioned before that you were maybe taken back if if I'm ever putting words in your mouth please correct me um or surprised by the broad appeal of Nevsky because in your eyes Nevsky was through the lens of wargaming. Yes. Can you can you expand on that and maybe talk about, I guess, what about your other designs? How did you approach those? Were those wargame designs first or were those a broader Eurogame appeal? Uh, sure. So my, my first published standalone game is Wilderness War, and it's a card-driven game, um, 2001. And it was it, it bounced off pretty closely uh, Mark Simonich's Hannibal Rome versus Carthage, which came from Mark Herman's We the People. So it's a classic CDG. And I, di- I didn't really try to stray too far. You know, the idea was, well, if I took Hannibal and I made it, put it in the French and Indian War, what would that look like? So so in those days, in the in the 90s, Hannibal was a departure and We the People was a departure. And there were people, including people like me, who was like, well, that's not a serious war game. Where are the hexes? Where's the combat results table? And so forth. And Hannibal was the game that kind of shook me loose of that and said, wow, this actually is a great simulation of the Second Punic War and it has cards. I mean, who would have thought? And so now I think we accept the CDG uh, subgenre as a pretty you know, solid traditional part of the wargaming world. Uh, at least I do. So Wilderness War wasn't trying to to innovate much from that. I just wanted a better game than was out there on the French and Indian War. And Labyrinth was was uh, sometime later than that, 2000 and, uh, t- designed 2009, published 2010, Labyrinth, The War on Terror. And it was, I mean, it's very, it's, it's global. So it's very political and it's counterterrorism. There's military stuff in it. So it's maybe going topically a little further away from from what you would typically see in a war game. It bounces off of Twilight Struggle and took the premise that the global ideological struggle in, of that day of 2009 and, and those years then uh, was jihadism and, and counter-jihadism. And so maybe if we took a popular game on the Cold War and we tried to then say, well, how would how would starting with that system and that kind of CDG 
um, how would we do the global war on terror? What would that look like? That's that's Labyrinth, which was my my second standalone um, designed game. And from there, uh, uh, the coin series was next, and the first one was Columbia, Andean Abyss, and and this is where there's really a contrast what I was trying to do there with what I was trying to do with Nevsky in terms of the audience. My thought with um, Andean Abyss and the coin series was so much of warfare is internal war, guerrilla warfare. And in our hobby of board wargaming, we have such a focus on big conventional wars. And so there's so much story to be mined here and, and we ought to have a series on it. And I happened to pick Columbia to start with. And um, in doing that, I can also perhaps lure some folks who aren't so interested in the traditional war game form. If I make something that looks more like a mainstream board game, a Euro game, and make it as accessible as I can whilst also while still being a political military simulation, a serious historical simulation. And in that way, do my small part to knit the tribes together, if you will, sort of, you know, lure the, the, the panzer pushers from one corner of the room and the cabbage growers from the other corner of the room and say, here's a game you can both enjoy together. So I was consciously, you know, aspiring to do that with the coin series. And then having had a successful series that, you know, and, and, and I do, I do this to entertain myself, you know, it's not my living. So, you know, what do I, what interests me next is, is always an important question to me. Uh, I thought, well, okay, I, I did that. Now I can kind of go back to, look, I, you know, I'm a war gamer. I'm going to do a two player head to head military operational conflict simulation it's going to be in an obscure setting, an obscure period of history, and and that's okay. That's the audience I'm going to because that's what I want to do. You know, it doesn't need to, it doesn't need to convince anybody to necessarily to try anything new. I just I'm just interested in examining medieval warfare at the operational level, and I happen to be interested in the Baltic frontier. So you mentioned that um, Carthage not Carthage, excuse me, Hannibal was a break from the norm and you followed that trend. And I think one of my takeaways at first Nevsky was uncomfortable. It was different. And a large part of that I think is, is combat resolution. And I'm curious, and it, it, it has completely, absolutely grown on me since then. I love combat. Let me just (laughs) clarify that. Sure. Um, Why was that the combat resolution from the get go? And I guess what was the design purpose, if there was one, by of making hits automatic and more rolling for ah, hits? Yeah. Um, so the, the I have to it's go back a bit because I said operational level, and so something that I want to have characterized the Living Campaign series is that we're we're focused on raising and maneuvering armies. Um, but everything is interwoven and to examine that, how, you know, why did armies appear, move around and fade away? Why did battles happen? Why do they happen there? All that stuff. We have to also have a little bit of the politics, the higher level um, politics that bring the 
conflict into being and, and guide its course, we also have to resolve the lower level tactical, well, what happens when you have a battle? And I've always found it a difficult um, balance to achieve in an operational game. I think, I think they're hard to design effectively, um, but that also makes it more fascinating to me um, because the battles might happen or they might not. They might be big or small. They might be even or uneven. And they have to be, it has to be fun to play. And so you've got to, you've got to resolve the battles fairly easily and quickly, but you don't want them to be just arbitrary and bland because if part of the decisions I'm making are to, you know, uh, obtain some crossbowmen for my army, let's say, well, then I want the crossbowmen to matter somehow. Right. And so we have to, so I had to come up with a way that I, I thought would be relatively quick to resolve but had some of that f- tactical flavor, right? And so that, that's sort of the result. So that's, it comes, kind of comes afterwards. It's not the purpose uh, of, of the, the system, um, but it's a necessary part of it. And so it needs to be kind of quick and easy and basic. So unit strengths are like, you know, one, you hit with one or maybe a half or in rare cases, two. You know, it's not, it's not a lot of, lot of detail. And the decisions are so also aren't great. And, and that I thought fit, the idea that in this period of time there probably was not a lot of tactical control you know that the mm. whoever the head lord was and he's got other lords that are kind of his buddies and relatives sort of on the <laughs> field you know and they're bashing at each other there's not all that much okay you go flank now and we'll you know there's not a lot of much finesse at least that was my sort of image in my head and and so there really aren't that many decisions you make when you resolve a battle. It's dicey, and it should be. Uh, you know, the commanders were hesitant to do this because you risk a lot. Uh, that comes out in the system. You're making kind of a rough probabilistic calculation in in in, in giving battle to the enemy. Um, and then to get to the specific point, of, so I didn't want a whole lot of, okay, this unit's going to hit that unit. And so, you know, that sort of stuff, this is not a tactical field. If you play Men of Iron or there's many other tactical games, mm. you can, you know, get that kind of thing. So it had to be basic. And I did want to have armor uh, stand mm. out mm-hmm. because of that image that we have, that this is, you know, very much contact sport. Um, you know, armor was very important, both against missiles and against sh- a shock. And the high quality units tend to be heavily armored and the low quality units are unarmored and there's others in between. And so the units are going to have those characteristics. So if, if the focus is going to be on armor, then it, it's, it just seemed to make sense that the, the uncertainty is, is your armor you know, good enough? Right. At the, if you go right down to the micro level, did, the, did that arrow pierce your breastplate or not? Wow. <laughs> right. Um, did you have a helmet? To protect you against that arrow or not, right? That sort of thing, or that club, or whatever it is. Okay, so to to if you if, scope that out a bit to units that represent a hundred guys or a couple hundred guys, okay, these guys are going to come. They're going to shoot stuff at you. That's kind of known. They're going to shoot a certain amount of arrows in a certain period of time at a certain range, or they're going to come and try to hit you. You know, with a hundred clubs. And the question is, how how tough is your armor? So just sort of conceptually. It made sense to to have the dice rolls be protection rolls, rather than did I hit you with my arrow, which seems like really tactical. Well, it's just it's just fascinating to 
you know, I <clears throat> I interviewed Sebastian Bay, and he's at Georgetown mm-hmm. teaching all these young aspiring war game designers. Oh, yes, fantastic go. program, yeah, yeah. And and the Zenobia Awards, and there's there's all this encouragement to design war games, and then you mm-hmm. start to think, hey, I could do that. And then mm-hmm. I hear, I and I'm not just saying this. I hear this thought process behind how decisions are made, and it's just what a brilliant design for effect. It's not just some arbitrary combat system. Yeah. I, I, and, and I think that phrase, thank you. And, uh, and, and you're right. Uh, we all can do it. Right. And, um, and an important um, pathway to that is playing a lot of games. If you play a lot of games, you probably have a lot of, you have a big mechanical toolbox and you're, and if it's historical games, you're already interested in history, and that's it. You've got the mechanical toolbox, how to <laughs> how to simulate um, history on the tabletop, and you've got the interest in in historical stories to delve deeply into it and to, you know, persevere because design, at least for 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 me, takes takes a long long time and a lot of perseverance. Um, but but design for effect. I mean, it, it, we are telling a story. We're trying to. There's a little bit of you know of suspension of disbelief, right? It's a little bit of role play, and it's a little bit of you're creating this story, and and if the point of it is history, history on the table, you know, as you put it, then the game succeeds if you suspend disbelief that that game is like a time machine and it's actually taking you there into that role, right? And so, I think the effect is important. It's not just well, did these inputs produce historical outputs? That's important too, right? Sure. It's not just, well, quantitative, you know, well, when you say there are 152 guys and, but, but your model, you know, is, is using the number 167. I mean, that's not ideal, but it's not really nearly as important as did I at some level for a time believe that I was running this army? Wow. I mean, I think you've surmised what... Rich and I, when we when we sit down and we we look at a game, the number one question for us is, how did that make us feel? Yeah, um, I think it's really cool to hear a designer talk about game design and the overall goal in that manner. When when you say you'd like to dive deep into a, a topic, and obviously you need to do the research and stuff, what what were the challenges for Nevsky? Because the 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 crusades when i think the crusades are uh, in the middle east are so well documented the northern crusades not near as much stuff out there so i can't imagine there's a lot of resources out there that says there were 152 men yeah, right, and you're right. you're showing 100 men so yeah what are the struggles with obscure topics that you like to dive into and i guess were there any particular struggles with uh nevsky there was a lot of struggle with nevsky because it Again, it was the first in the series, and I was essentially alone at first. And I've been in a very different situation since then, uh, where I've had a lot of um, knowledgeable help, you know, local <laughs> help with people with access to, to native the, the, the native language resources and so forth that I just didn't have for Nevsky. And you're right, there are not a lot of First of all, there are not a lot of a whole lot of English language books on those campaigns, and so I started with a reading mainly about the general setting. Um, uh, you know, as I th- as I think you you talked about on your your last show, and 
then burrowed in wh- where I could to to particulars, and I found more than I expected to find. Actually, but you're right; you soon bump into. There's not a lot of documentary evidence specific to this campaign. You have, you know, a few paragraphs in the Novgorod Chronicle, uh, a couple paragraphs in the Livonian Rhyme Chronicle, and those are the main, you know, written sources on the particular campaigns that are in the game. Then you've got other other kinds of of evidence. You've got archaeological examination. You've got um, a, a lot of study of things like the the Russians' use of the river systems for uh, for for trade and so forth. So. Um, so it, it's there, but in a way, at the end, at the end of the day, there's a lot we actually can't know. And when you model a campaign, uh, especially one that's you know sparsely documented like this, you realize there's just a lot of questions you have to answer to get the model to work, to fill in gaps, because stuff is happening that whoever's chronicling it just didn't think was important enough to write down. You know, you you have if if you're only going to have a few paragraphs in your city chronicle of this war, mm-hmm. it's going to focus on the important stuff of the people you want to highlight, mm-hmm. and it's not going to describe a lot of other stuff that either never got reported in the first place or just wasn't important enough to to to, to write down. And so I kind of find that a little bit actually liberating, because I feel if I if I have no choice. I mean, I, I have to do the diligence I can do to ground my representation in whatever information that there is and the scholarship I can get my hands on. But then I have some license. If I have to fill in something, I'm going to fill mm. it in as plausibly as I can. And so that's what I kind of mean by you try to immerse yourself into figuring out what's, what is plausible, right? And a particular challenge with Nevsky is there's a, there are a lot more sources, of course, than in, in, that, is, that is accessible to me. In, in English and a part of the way through the design and, and, and sometimes far into the design, I did get um, commentary from, you know, war gamers online, Russians, um, uh, Balts, um, Scandinavians and so forth. And, you know, they didn't all necessarily agree with what I'd done. In some cases I adjusted, in other cases I, I didn't, and I stuck to my original interpretation, and then you have the results you have. But it is like it's the it's the same process as writing history, and the reason that you know academically we consider history a humanity, not a social science, and that is because of the the necessity always of interpretation. You're going to get it an individual's view mm-hmm. right hopefully it's a well-grounded view right but it's not here it is scientific fact and if if you know if if your rendition of this campaign differs from mine you're wrong i mean i just can't i can't <laughs> i don't have enough to stand on to to, to say that did you find the str- those struggles were they similar to what you experienced designing labyrinth and what, what i mean by that is as you designed labyrinth we still had a presence in Afghanistan. That was an ongoing concern. And mm-hmm. I imagine that a lot of primary resources maybe weren't available at that time. I'm not sure. I, I assume some stuff had not been declassified yet. And it probably had not been as well written about as other historical topics. So is it, is it a similar stru- struggle to have an open-ended game design? or I think the the cases are very different on the on the issue of 
what information is there and you know and and where do you get it um and i actually don't think it's as hard to um to come by i guess to come by the content for a recent event um i mean there's a view out there that it's too recent to be history it's not history it's journalism because it's so recent well of course we do history um up to very recent events and there are challenges with that in terms of current perspective but then you have as you say an abundance of information there's an abundance of information from labyrinth and i I will tell you that um labyrinth substantive substantively came from what i knew from making a living i mean i was working then as an intelligence analyst an intelligence briefer specifically and this was just you know what i what i had to know about every day professionally <laughs> okay and it went the the game design went through a security release review wow and everything in there um is from unclassified sources it's stuff i knew in that position in the intelligence community but of course i wasn't drawing on classified information so there was tons of stuff Right there's tons of stuff on that, and the real question, the real challenge there is, how do I take all of that and fit it in, and represent? You know, I have to make. I have to again. I'm filling in the gaps, not so much in data, but in how does how do things work, and 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 how do I simplify that into a way that that produces good results in a dynamic model? For example, in Labyrinth, why does the jihadist use terror? Right there, there. It, it's not the point of jihadism to use terror. Terror is one tool among many tools, right? That that they were using. So, how how do I incentivize the players as the jihadist player in Labyrinth to either try to get off terror plots or not? You know, to invest that resource and do that or not? I have to answer that question, and that's not a simple answer. And if you say, well, you're going to give up, you know, a single game mechanic because you don't want to load this down with all kinds of complicated stuff. That I'm really boiling something down. That's the interpretation part, and that's really the, the difficult part. And the answer in, in Labyrinth is: the more they, more the better the terror plots are that they they get off. The main thing they get from that is they get funding from sponsors. They get attention from from like-minded individuals with money, and they get the money. There's other things they get, but that's the main thing. And that's a hypothesis. You know, that's not a fact. I have a I have a question, and I tend not to ask yes or no questions, but I do have a, a, a semi self serving question because I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Um, at your recommendation on my own discovery, I and we've alluded to it, the Northern Crusades by Eric Christensen. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and one of the first, you know, one of the first books that I read working on Nevsky. And so far, it's a it's a great book and um, broader than than yes. the approach of Nevsky, but one approach that Christensen argues and i'm just curious if you agree with him or not and this is more of a historical question than a design question but um we love history so (laughs) do you feel that the northern crusades are more impactful as impactful less impactful than the crusades are they more important less important just as important uh than the the ones in the holy land yes Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's a 
So that is a hard question to answer, you know, on what metric, right? Right. Um, of course. You know, they're they're more important. They're more important for the pagans of the Baltic region. <laughs> um, you know, uh, they're more important for the for the history of Germany. Sure. Um, they're certainly very important for the great clash between Slavs and Teutons that I learned about in History One Hundred and One. You know? <laughs> um, I, I presume they're. I mean, they're less important for for the history of Islam and so on. So it probably depends on where you, where you stood. I think what you can say about the Northern Crusades is they, they, I mean, they led to colonization and conversions for better or worse. I mean, this isn't a good thing necessarily um, that, that were enduring. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so something that was striking to me in working on Nevsky is here we are in 1240, and the border that I'm drawing between Livonia, ruled by uh, Teutons, and Rus, ruled by Russians, is the current border of, the, of Russia, of the Russian Federation today. I mean, really? almost precisely. Wow. And, and at that time, at the time of uh, Nevsky's campaigns, uh, the 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 Germans had been there for less than two generations, something like that, right? It's fascinating. I think I we have I have s several more questions, but this does tie into some direct um, questions from the History on the Table Discord server, and this I think this kind of ties into our continued diving into the obscure topics. And so Caleb asked, "What's a medieval topic that doesn't have a game?" that you would like to see a game of? <laughs> yes. Well, I, 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 no, I'm, I'm not trying to, to divert or be facetious, but <laughs> Caleb, come join us on the Levian Campaign <laughs> Discord server and you'll see something close to two dozen answers to that question. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a similar case for me, and I'm, I'm, I'm just delighted by this, to the coin series, in which once we could show that you could make an enjoyable um, game of a type of warfare that either most war gamers hadn't thought about or were skeptical could be interesting and entertaining to play. In that case, it was modern guerrilla warfare. In this case, medieval operations. You discover there's such a wealth of stories. There are, I mean, we are we're co we come up with new topics every day. You know the limit is on actually being able to execute, you know all of these games. But there are um, fascinating medieval campaigns across the continent, and we have one going in Japan. We have a, a concept. We have two concepts um, for uh, pre-colonization um, Americas. Wow. Uh, uh, in the same system, there's enough information to to do that. Uh, and pick your pick your century from the 500s to the 1500s. So, I, I mean, I could give you a long list, but that would be tedious. the The, the question is the, the the question is how will we ever fill in the gaps in the repertoire because there are so many great stories to tell. This transitions beautifully to something that I think is groundbreaking that, and as far as I know, and I'm aware of, and I could be wrong, 
levying campaign is really the first to implement this approach. And that's the levying campaign discord server where there is a levying campaign hive mind Mm -hmm. developing and building upon the founding blocks. How, how have you implemented discord and online communication into the continued development of the series? Uh, Yeah. Discord uh, turns out to be a great environment for this. And I became familiar with it in two ways that suggested this could work. Um, the The first is the um, coin series has a Discord server that I didn't start. I'm not really much of a part of it, but it was started up, I think, by enthusiasts of the series to... I think just to to play, uh, you know, to get on Vassal or or Tabletop Simulator and play, but it it developed into an, a creative exchange as well and started producing designs. And some of those designers and designs um, started popping up in uh, in contests uh, like Consim Game Jam um, and came to GMT's attention and some of those are now going to get published or uh, as coin series or as a, the related um, internal conflict series that GMT games has begun. So it, or it, I think, I don't think it was started as a design forum, but it, it produced that among other things organically, uh, apparently. So that was really exciting. The other is that with the, the pandemic, so many of us have been um, nudged to uh, pick up these tools like Discord, like Vassal, like Tabletop Simulator. And one manifestation of that, the first that I knew of was um, San Diego Historical uh, Games Convention, SD Histcon, which used to be in San Diego every November live, um, basically said, well, we're going to do it online and we're going to do it on Discord. And uh, that worked so well that um, the, the Spanish Wargaming Con in Badajoz, Bayotacon that I've attended a couple times, uh, did the same thing. Th- this last this last time in January they were they were live again, but the previous year they did it also on Discord with great success. And so, so many of us now have become familiar with that kind of environment, Discord, and those kinds of 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 tools, TTS and Vassal. That there's a, I mean there's a a, a body of um, of collaborators who can form that kind of a hive mind. And so this particular Discord server that now hosts the Levian campaign, in effect, design forum, design development playtest uh, forum for Levian campaign, um, that server was launched by Francisco Gradisha, pa- Paco Gradisha, who had a Levian campaign Design Plantagenet on the Wars of, Wars of the Roses that's now on GMT's P500, and he's he's he basically established that and reached out to me and we wanted to use that to find him more playtesters and I said well I happen to know not only you but there are you know another half dozen or so designers working on designs let's see if we can all get together on that server and swing the doors open. And uh, so it was initially, can we find play testers? But now, of course, um, we see that we have uh, 
a, you know, I'd say a dozen well along, uh, you know, playable prototype in testing projects and another dozen that are somewhere behind that. Wow. And what's your, what's your involvement on, are you heavily involved with all of them? Are some of them taking their own organic life and you're just there for guidance or? I think it's more the latter and it's okay. a, it's a, it is a mix as it was with the coin series. I mean, some coin series, I'm mm-hmm. the designer, some I'm the co-designer, some I'm the developer, some I consulted a little bit and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in this case, since the series is newer, I'm a little more present than I than I have been lately in the coin series, which has its own you know team of people now who know a lot more about what's going on than than I do anyway. Um, uh, and and I you know I kind of take particular responsibilities that have to do with with series integrity and its its shape and its progress and and so forth. Um, but the Many of the design, the, the, I mean, a, a point of doing it this way really is that these designs are going to present ideas that I never would have thought of, much less knew, known how to execute. And that's happening so that we have um, things, uh, topics that stray outside Europe, stray outside the Middle Ages per se, a four player game, a naval game, um, and, and, and so forth. And I'm so I'm there a lot. In fact, I'm on that Discord now more often than than I'm on on Twitter. <laughs> you know where 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 you and I first got in touch, which is saying a lot because I've been on Twitter a lot. Uh, I find I'm on on the Living Campaign Discord more. So there's just a lot going on there um, for me. And what I'm trying to do, in addition to just ensuring that that environment allows that exchange of information and everybody's um, getting whatever you know feedback they want. I'm also trying to keep a finger on um, what's the state of each project. You know, mm. we, we will have to roll them out in a certain order, um, so it's good to know how far along they are, and um, a- and are they in the right zone of sufficiently familiar, but not samey. So this is a, a challenge with any series that goes a lot of volumes is mm-hmm. there's a there's a responsibility to reward players who have played earlier volumes or other volumes with some familiarity. There's some payoff now that you've struggled to learn how this works. You know, if we have something else that's called Levin Campaign, it's not going to be totally different. You're going to feel like you're on familiar ground and that's going to help you. At the same time, there's got to be a reason for a you know, for you to buy a volume 10, you know, right? If you have uh, the other nine, each one has to deliver something new. And so that, that means sometimes I'm say, I'm asking questions like, well, why did you do it that way? Is it just because that's the way it was in Nevsky or is it because that's the best way to do it mm. for this situation, for what you're trying to simulate in that setting? Because we don't want to be slavish, mm-hmm. right? We we want we want to transport you into that specific setting, and it's going to feel different because that setting was different, because operations were different, the culture was different, the terrain was different, whatever it is. 
or I might be asking the question, you know, why did you do it that way and not the way that it's done in Nevsky? Was it just to be original? Mm-hmm. Because that's not a good answer. Mm-hmm. There has to be simulation and gameplay purpose for everything. And so if we already did something some way and it actually is very similar in dynamic historically to something in an earlier volume, then it's 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 cheating the fans of a series to change it just to change it. Just to change it. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think it's really cool what the community you've built there, not only just a, a fan community, but also everything that's going on there. Um, great atmosphere. And um, thank you for um, reminding me. I struggle to remember what Paco's involvement was with levying campaign, but now I know. Plantagenet's. <laughs> Plantagenet is his design. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I have a couple a couple questions from our Discord left, and then uh, if you're game, I'd like to do the history on the table hot seat. Roger. Um, so let's let's go back to Labyrinth real quick. Now, Rob asks: Now that the U.S. has left Afghanistan, looking back on Labyrinth, how do you feel you captured the conflict overall? Will anything else be added to complete the story that's that you've built and others have built over the years? Ah, very good. So let me let me separate two. Um, games that have to do with that. Labyrinth, the War on Terror, which is the global. Afghanistan is in it. Regime change is in it. Coalition troops, jihadists, Taliban is in it. But it's a space on the whole global board. There's another game, A Distant Plane, Coin Series Volume 3, which I co-designed with Brian Train. And it's Afghanistan 2001 to 2013. So national level insurgency, counterinsurgency. And so in, 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 in both of those, I feel pretty good. Um, although in terms of how well the model has stood the test in time, but Labyrinth was mainly addressing some larger questions such as, um, s- such as what is the interplay between the commitment of counterterrorism resources and terrorism resources in a in a war zone. Um, to what degree is it flypaper where you're drawing in the terrorists to kill them, or to what degree are you diverting your national resources from the ability to do the more important um, security work elsewhere? Uh, so I think that model did pretty well because it included the idea of U.S overstretch from being at war and that if it was spending a lot of time tied down in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's not going to be as able to deal with problems elsewhere. On the other hand, um, the jihadists too have to focus on those conflicts. So that balance is there and I don't really have a, there's nothing about recent history in Afghanistan that leads me to really revisit it. But I think more interesting is how well does the model in a distant plane, insurgency in Afghanistan, stand up now that we have a, this this coda, the twenty you know end of a twenty year coalition war there? Um, and I mean, I have to I have to leave it to players. We were fairly modest when we designed that game in twenty thirteen that we weren't trying to predict anything, but by twenty thirteen, the fundamental dynamics among the factions in Afghanistan 
and why it was going to make any kind of satisfying resolution um, unlikely, I, I, I think we're pretty clear. And, and I think we captured them in that game, um, pitting four players against each other and having um, the relationship between the, the coalition and the government be a, 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 a fairly bad marriage. The relationship between those and the warlords being an ambiguous one, um, and uh, and the Taliban being the Taliban and Pakistan being its its influencing factor. Uh, one of the design innovations in that design, a distant plane that carried over, by the way, into Fire in the Lake, which is Vietnam in the same series, the next volume that I did with Mark Herman is that one of the victory conditions for the coalition is to get out. The other one is to uh, get out when the popular support for the government is reasonably strong. Um, and you can already see the tension in, in those two conditions in the game. Um, at the end of the day, what the coalition wanted to do was not live there, right? Not be there. Um, and so, if you get out relatively unscathed, um, your score is is better. Whereas it doesn't make it a happy ending for the country. Absolutely. Wow. So final question from Discord, and I think it's a, I wanted to bring up before we got before we wrap up, and that's the Z Zenobia Awards. So mm. WS Gossett asks, what were some unexpected insights, and what are the future plans of Zenobia Awards? And I guess before you answer that, um, maybe a brief statement on exactly what the Zenobia Awards are for those that don't know. Sure. So uh, we ran um, we a group of enthusiasts like me, <laughs> um, got together and ran a contest sponsored by uh, a number of uh, game companies and designers and others with cash prizes that um, sought to attract uh, diverse talent, talent from underrepresented groups um, to design games on historical topics, games that would be historical simulations on any topic they wanted. And the games were to be judged on uh, his, historicity, uh, innovation, um, originality, um, and gameplay. Were they, were they engaging and fun to play? And contestants, if they wanted to be, uh, were mentored by other game designers or, or, or creators in, in the industry. Um, resources like technical assistance with Tabletop Simulator were made available. And we went through several structured rounds um, we ended up with, oh, I forgot the, the numbers becoming foggy now, but, but the first insight was we didn't know when we started this out, whether we could, um, reach that the talent that we knew was out there that we could like get to find these. Cause these weren't necessarily folks in our own networks, you know, mm -hmm. getting together to run this contest. And we had, I mean, we were overwhelmed with applications. I think we had 150, we took that down to something like a hundred requests for concept proposals, eventually, um, 30 some prototypes, um, narrowed down to eight finalists and two honorable mentions, and then, then three winners of the prizes in the end. And so it was, I thought a f phenomenal demonstration 
of that concept that if you get people from different life experiences, you will get a terrific breadth of history, of historical topics and perspectives of things you would have never thought of. And um, as far as I could tell from how folks were reacting to these game proposals and um, prototypes, they're games that um, are, are, are going to have an audience. And I know that several of these um, contestants are either in discussions with game publishers or already have contracts. So, um, so that was the Zenobia Award for 2020. Now, we were all just, like I said, enthusiasts and volunteers, and um, we completed our 2020 contest and we dissolved our board. And mm-hmm. so now the question is, um, is there to be another running of the Zenobia Award? And that conversation is not yet completed. Hmm. However, if there is, it is it is going to be some other leadership than those of us um, who first got together. It might be a, a subset of that board, but it won't be all the same ones of us. And, and a, an important reason for that is that um, you know, our board was not as uh, representative of the world or mm. of, uh, of this country um, as the game community and the, the, the designer um, cadre that we would like to see. And so what we need is uh, what we need is that kind of talent um, from underrepresented groups to perhaps if, if there's the desire to do this, um, benefit from this experiment that we did last year and do something similar, but, but better. Hmm. Great. Well, I think it's time then, unless you have anything that you want to promote that's upcoming, obviously there's levying campaign titles in the works. Almoravid was my guess of April fairly accurate, maybe. Yes, uh, April is when we expect. So the 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 game is produced. It's on its way across the ocean okay. to GMT Games in California. April is when it's supposed to land. And uh, I mean, with some irony, uh, if you play Levian Campaign, it's all about uh, supply. You know, it's all <laughs> about being able to move the stuff from point A to point B. Uh, at least it is at this point. So, uh, so April is when uh, it's expected to reach the warehouse, and then hopefully, it, it starts flying out to P five hundred pre orders uh, very soon. Uh, at that point, I don't know uh, when in April that will be, but April is indeed the the, the ETA. And uh, and then we have two other volumes uh, on P five hundred for for pre-order that are already in art because GMT has supported us. Uh, also, this is also happening um, via the Discord server in terms of proofing and feedback. So we have a series artist, an embedded artist, in effect, uh, Robert Altbauer. He's uh, an Austrian and uh, he's doing some great art. The Inferno art is very well along. Plantagenet has begun. And both of those titles are on pre-order discount uh, on GMT's P500 page. Inferno is Tuscany in the 13th century. 
Guelphs versus Ghibellines, uh, co-designed by me and Italian designer Enrico Acerbi. And then Plantagenet, as we talked about, was Wars of the Roses um, by, uh, by Francisco Gradigia. Outstanding. Looking forward to both of them. Uh, any, not, that's plenty, but anything else on the horizon? Anything outside of Levian campaign or is that? Uh, I, there's, you know, nothing that anybody can, can act on. Okay. Um, I had a, a, a title out there in the past that is, that is now still in work, but it's a little game called hunt for Blackbeard. Oh. Um, and it's a man hunting game. It's a pirate hunting game. Um, sort of a double blind thing. And what's in work for that is, can we pull off a solitaire system? And, uh, so that's with GMT one, which is GMT's solitaire design team right now. And we'll see what happens, but it's uh, not, not available for pre-order at this time. Okay. Wonderful. Well, we'll go get comfortable. All right. Seats, seats about to heat up. Here we go. You ready? Sure. What do you hope every player takes away from playing one of your games? Uh, th- that they've traveled in time. Awesome. Love it. Favorite topic to play a war game on. Oh, <laughs> um, not world war two. <laughs> Fair. Favorite topic to read about. Uh, medieval warfare at the moment. <laughs> First modern board game. You- you remember playing? Well, a first modern board game I remember playing. Wow. Um, I guess Nick Carp's Vietnam 1965 to 1975, which I played in 1984. So does that count as modern? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, just, right. I Yeah. Would that also be your first war game? Oh, no. Oh, what was your first war game? France 1940. Favorite past gaming experience? Wow. Uh, most recently, uh, our annual holiday War of the Ring with my two sons. Oh, awesome. Who wins the Super Bowl this year? Not a football fan. Will the Whether you're a fan or not, will the 2022 MLB season be delayed? <laughs> I have no forecast for you. <laughs> What's a game on your table right now? I have uh, on my table two games right now. On my upstairs table is Inferno. I'm testing a scenario, just a home test of one of the scenarios for that game and Levian campaign. Downstairs, uh, Right, Fierce, and Terrible, Sluice 1340. Uh, it's Against the Odds magazine by the brilliant designer... Um, Jerry White, and it's a medieval naval battle from the Hundred Years' War. Whoa. I'm going <laughs> to pause real quick, mark that, grab a copy when we're done before this goes live, because that sounds awesome. And if you're interested in that, I've got a two-part write-up on uh, on a playthrough on the Board Games Chronicle. Awesome. Uh, best city to get barbecue in? Mm. I'm really going to disappoint you here. Um, I'm vegan. <laughs> okay. Hey, you know what? Um, there's a place in Kansas City that does a, a vegan barbecue sandwich. Oh, and I, fantastic. And I love how they do it because they don't try to make it 
be a you know like a barbecue pork sandwich or anything like that it's uh, yeah. portobello mushrooms and it yeah. is fantastic i'm not well, a then, vegan, then, like then i changed my answer to kansas city <laughs> yeah right <laughs> good um <clears throat> gettysburg or the bulge gettysburg are you a regular podcast listener not of not of his just in general no okay sci-fi or fantasy <sighs> it's tough sci-fi Fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction. What book's next to your bed or coffee table right now? Origins of Humankind by Richard Leakey. Is it good? Uh, it's it's interesting. I have that and I have like an earlier book by him and he's talking about how the theories, you know, mid 70s to mid 90s, how the theories change. But particularly, I was, yeah, reading after when we think uh, uh, humans or homo, the homo line first ate meat. What are you going to read after that? Probably go back to my medieval warfare magazine, which is like my people magazine that I read by the fireplace when I'm <laughs> tired in the evening. Wow. Didn't know that was a thing. Oh, yeah. Um, what's most influential book you've read? Influential. You know, I'm going to go all the way back to um, The Complete Guide to Board Wargaming by Nicholas Palmer. Wow. Nice. I mean, if you mean influential on me, not on mm-hmm. the world. Sure. Of course. E-reader or print? Print. Last great book you read? Hmm. Um, Price of Glory, about Battle of Verdun. Okay. Last bad book? Hmm. I've forgotten it. <laughs> Fair. Do you reread books? In fact, uh, it was a reread of Price of Glory. Yeah, I do. Okay. Uh, what are you playing next? Uh, I'm going to be playing Atlantic Chase with my son this weekend. who's coming to visit. So Atlantic Chase, um, you, you may have heard of, made some somewhat of a splash, but that's that's uh, Jeremy Jerry White, the same designer as uh, the ATO game I mentioned. Are, I believe... Our next topic will be Atlantic Chase. The ah. deciding vote is rich. He gets to decide between Men of Iron and Atlantic Chase, I believe. Yeah. Well, I have a particular medieval leaning, and and Atlantic Chase is indeed World War II. However, <laughs> however, it's really interesting. Atlantic it Chase is? is really interesting design. Uh, if you could meet and have dinner with any world world leader, dead or alive, who would it be? Uh, and I say world leader, either political or military. Oh, wow. That's such a big universe. Um, gosh. I don't want to blow this choice. I know, I know that, that your listeners are waiting, but what an opportunity. Goodness. Um, Oh, I don't know. How about Gustav Adolf? Oh, you're testing my knowledge here. Who's that? Gustavus Adolphus, king of Sweden, who... Oh. Yeah. I have a thing for the Thirty Years' War, so... 
Fair enough. Okay. Uh, when will Finland be represented in levying campaign? Well, you know, we do have a an, an event in Nevsky. We have a crusade in Finland. Touche. Okay. Um, <laughs> and and Finland is well represented in the coin series. Yes. So there's that. Yes. Uh, I face our opponent. I have I have a copy, but yet to get it to the table. We'll see if it is the year of Finnish wargaming. Uh, alien or aliens? Wow, uh, you know they're uh, they're both fantastic, um, but alien, I guess. Nice. What's one tech you always go fetch for when you're playing Levi- uh, Nevsky? Uh, one. Did you say tech? Yeah, I, when I say tech, one ability that you go and uh, levy for if you don't get it in your opening draw. Uh, if you're the the Teutons, you know you really need the legate outside of some special situations and if you're the russians uh black sea trade because you need the coin mm-hmm. i learned that lesson recently uh tutans are russians <laughs> um the russians because they're the underdog <laughs> yeah. um i know you said not world war ii but the pacific or band of brothers Um, do you mean in terms of the show or the, the setting? It's I intended as the show, but it's open-ended. Okay. okay. Band of Brothers as the okay. show, but I find the Pacific Theater much more interesting. And and even though I, I even though World War II is is it's, I, I hate to say overdone because it sounds negative, is so thoroughly done in wargaming. <laughs> best war game of all time. Combat Commander Pacific by Chad Jensen. Wow. Hot take. Hot take on the hot seat. Uh, tiki Bar or Swanky Cocktail Lounge? Tiki Bar. Favorite war film? <sighs> Dust Boat. Nice. Favorite card game? Favorite card game? Can I say up front? Is that fair? <laughs> I, I suppose so. It's your interpretation. Uh, favorite historical site to visit? Historical site to visit. Um, Colonial Williamsburg. Finland or Sweden? <laughs> Just watching Deadwind on TV. So at the moment, Finland. <laughs> Uh, in the a historical location you most want to visit, Tuscany. Ooh, good choice. That's it. You can relax. You can breathe. <laughs> we'll go. Thank you so much for giving up your evening and uh, taking the time. Is super insightful. I I love picking at and just digesting um, the brains behind the designers. I've been fortunate enough to sit down and talk with. Um, and it's just tons of insight. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. It's a fun conversation, and uh, I really do mean it to uh, uh, anyone who's interested in a glimpse at at Levy and campaign. No obligation, but you know, DM me on Twitter or 
um, get in touch with me and uh, I'll give you a link. Come, come have a look at the Discord server. We're having a good time there. If you're interested in medieval warfare, lots going on. Awesome. All right. Thank you.